Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to 1932, the 36th season of the VFL. The Depression continued to drag the country down, with unemployment reaching a peak of 32%. One third of workers could not find a job, with more than 60,000 men, women and children were dependent on SUSO, a state-based sustenance payment that enabled families to buy only the bare minimum of food. The nation mourned when news came through in April that the Red Terror, Far Lap, had died in the United States. Rumours of deliberate poisoning spread, never confirmed nor absolutely ruled out, but the hope that Australia, or possibly New Zealand's finest racehorse, the champion that created hope during the Depression, would conquer America, were dashed. In the modern footy era, games between Sydney and Greater Western Sydney are sometimes referred to as the Battle of the Bridge, in reference to the Sydney Harbour Bridge, which, ironically, joins the northern and southern parts of Sydney, rather than the eastern-based Swans and the western-based Giants. Regardless, March 1932 saw the opening of the magnificent Harbour Bridge. Still in New South Wales, a political crisis unfolded in May when Labour Premier Jack Lang had opposed the Premier's plan, developed in Melbourne in 1931, to cut budgets, reduce salaries, cut workers and so forth. He decided instead to stop interest payments on loans taken out by New South Wales from the United Kingdom. This controversial action was opposed by the Federal Labor Party and the new Conservative Federal Government, who passed legislation to pay the required interest and then recover the money from New South Wales. Jack Lang moved all of the New South Wales Government money from the Federal Government accounts to local bank accounts. The high-stakes standoff was resolved when the Governor of New South Wales sacked the Lang Government, appointing the opposition United Australia Party as a caretaker government pending an election, which they won in a landslide. An episode that would be repeated in another four decades at the federal level when Gough Whitlam's Labor government was sacked by John Kerr, but that's many episodes away. On the 1st of July 1932, the ABC was established by the Australian government. While initially a radio network, the ABC has been a key broadcaster of VFL and AFL games on radio, then TV, and now online for more than nine decades, alongside various commercial broadcasters. And while there are no VFL or AFL teams that have ever used the EMU as a mascot, shout out to the Morfitt Vale Footy Club in South Australia, 1932 did see the Australian Army lose a war against the emus in Western Australia. If you want to reduce the emu population in marginal farming areas, using machine guns is just not the right approach. In international affairs, 1932 saw Japan establish the puppet state of Manchukuo in the northern China, and in Germany, Paul von Hindenburg won the presidential election, defeating Adolf Hitler. Sadly, it won't be the last we hear about either of those two countries. There were some inventions in 1932 that we continue to use today, perhaps 
not always happily. Photos of high marks and critical moments in games have become possible with the invention of zoom lenses for cameras. While many people have enjoyed taking Polaroid photos at the footy over the years. Polaroid photos invented by Edwin Lamb in 1932. But if you've ever got a ticket because the parking meter expired before the game was over, you could blame Carl McGee, who invented the first parking meter back in 1932. It was also an Olympic year, Los Angeles hosting the Summer Games. Australia sent 12 athletes, down from the 19 that attended in Amsterdam in 1928. The successful team won three gold, one silver and a bronze medal. Closer to home, September 1932 saw the Melbourne Cricket Club announce a significant expansion of the capacity for the MCG, with over 100,000 people to be accommodated. The decision would result in the construction of the original Southern Stand, which we'll hear more about in coming episodes. Let's get the focus back onto footy. One of the perennials in Australian football is the hope for international expansion. Before the First World War, a group of American schoolboys had been taught the game and then toured Australia, playing football as well as baseball games. Their leader, Major Sidney Paxato, wrote articles in the New York Times and the Washington Post in 1910, saying Australian football was the best code in the world. In 1906, the VFL had written to US universities and even President Teddy Roosevelt to promote the Australian game as an alternative to the violent American code. And there was even interest from a French woman after the First World War, hoping she could get the local Ruin team to adopt Australian rules as a safer option than rugby. All to no avail. But hope springs eternal then as now and 1932 saw talk of a possible tour of the United States. Hawthorne's George Cathy shared early discussions of the potential of 10 games to be played in places such as Chicago, Detroit or San Francisco. Perhaps a catalyst for the idea was the fact that 1931 was one of the deadliest seasons in American football, with 43 players killed. The possible tour continued to attract attention. The idea would be to take two teams of Australian rules players over to the US. Gordon Inkster, a former Port Adelaide player, South Australian cricketer and sometimes journalist, wrote multiple articles in the Sporting Globe promoting the idea and confidently stating that, with a few compromises, the Americans would quickly take to Australian rules. The two main compromises that he deemed worthy of introducing into the local game were to allow throwing the ball, as per the American Code, and unlimited interchange. Arguably, a reasonable prediction of the modern game, where many a handball looks suspiciously like a throw, and an ever-expanding interchange bench continues to grow. Still, no significant interest from the Americans, though, in taking up our code of football. So Gordon got that one wrong. The tour didn't happen, but rest assured... The dream of international expansion will not disappear. In the previous episode covering the 1931 season, you'll recall the drama and confrontation between the VFL and the cricket authorities regarding a fair arrangement on ground management, given that the VFL generated bigger crowds and more revenue for the grounds, which were managed by cricket clubs. However, in 1932, there was a new era of cooperation. An Ashes series was due after the end of the footy season, 
and this meant that the Melbourne Cricket Club had plans to improve the surface at the MCG. First, the VFL arranged its fixture to finish a week earlier than required, with the grand final scheduled for the first Saturday in October, giving the Melbourne Cricket Club ground staff an extra week to prepare the ground for the England-Victoria game starting on November 4. And the VFL also allowed Melbourne to play early home games at the Motodrome, while the Melbourne Cricket Ground was resurfaced as part of renewing the ground for the most anticipated Ashes series. The Motodrome had been contracted as part of the VFL's attempt to break away from the cricket grounds. Now it was cooperating with the cricket authorities, and finally the Motodrome would be used for VFL matches. With poor weather slowing the growth of grass, Melbourne played their first three home games there, before returning to the MCG. They also used the Motodrome for training, and it was not a happy place for the fuchsias. No hot showers, crowded change rooms, and other parties using the ground restricted training at times. Perhaps this contributed to the club's terrible start to the season. And to show that their goodwill was not limited, the VFL also scheduled a second charity game against the VFA on the King's birthday holiday in June. There might be a depression, but the VFL was showing a rare amount of cooperation with two sporting bodies that were often seen as competing interests. As the end of April approached, the practice games had been completed, even if they were mostly wet and muddy affairs, and the clubs trimmed their lists prior to the first game of the season on Saturday the 30th of April. South Melbourne were looking to change their fortunes in 1932. They had last won a flag in 1918, and by the start of the 1930s, they were in debt, having trouble paying their players, and were not well connected into the local business community. Crowd numbers were down, membership was falling, and things had to change. President Jack Rowan persuaded grocery store magnate Archie Conrad's to come onto the committee and help revive the club. Things were so dire that the predominantly Catholic club were willing to ignore the fact that Archie was a Protestant. These things were a real issue at the time. He may well have been a Protestant, but Archie ran a business that would expand to 137 stores. He could provide guaranteed employment to new recruits and bring a business approach to a club that was struggling. The team would go into the season with a new look jumper, the red sash being replaced with the red V on a white jumper. They would also be introducing a cohort of new players from far and wide. Three Western Australians, Brighton Diggins, Bill Fall and Bert Beard, the nucleus of the Foreign Legion that South became famous for in the 1930s. Employment for players was a challenge many clubs struggled with. Richmond's 1932 annual report said, No greater service can be done than that of securing employment for players. Melbourne announced that all their players had jobs. Many other clubs could only wish they could say the same. Indigenous pioneer Doug Nichols would finally get to play VFL football at Fitzroy. Even if as late as the Monday before the season started, it was reported that Northcote would not clear him. Sir Doug Nichols is now remembered every season of the AFL with the Indigenous Round named in his honour. Six clubs changed coaches in 1932. 
Geelong, South and North Melbourne moved from non-playing to playing coaches, while Fitzroy, Hawthorne and Melbourne went the non-playing coach direction. In recent seasons, it had been non-playing coaches that had won premierships, but a playing coach provided some economy, as you got a player and a coach for the one wage. Geelong's successful 1931 premiership coach, Charlie Climo, would create a unique record of coaching just one season, winning the premiership and leaving the league. Why he left is a bit of a mystery. He wrote a thank you letter to the people of Geelong in the Geelong Advertiser after the premiership and then he was gone. One theory was that he had promised to return to his job at the Ballarat Fire Brigade after a year's leave without pay. In his place, the Cats installed captain coach Reg Hickey, who would become a legend of Geelong, and we'll hear more about him in coming episodes. South Melbourne replaced Paddy Scanlon with Johnny Leonard. He had moved from Subiaco to captain coach Maryborough in 1931 to escape unemployment in Perth, and was now stepping up to the VFL. Winner of two Sandover medals, one retrospectively, and a premiership player in Subiaco's 1924 triumph, he would play in South Melbourne's forward line. North Melbourne had not had any success since joining the VFL, and perhaps it was no coincidence they had no stability in their coaching selection. They had played seven years in the VFL and had 11 different coaches. There had only been three seasons where the appointed coach had seen out the entire season. Hoping to provide both success and stability in 1932, Dick Taylor was appointed after the failure of the experienced Norm Clark in 1931. Dick had had success at Melbourne in the forward line and was known for his training efforts. And it was hoped he would generate change at Arden Street. Fitzroy were also looking for success. The early league powerhouse had fallen on lean times since their last premiership 10 years earlier in 1922. Colin Niven had been given two seasons without changing the club's fortunes. So now, Frank Maher, who had been captain coach at Essendon for three seasons, before winning two premierships as captain coach of Oakley in the VFA in 1930 and 31, was returning to the VFL. He'd be standing outside the fence this time as non-playing coach of the Maroons. Hawthorne had also struggled to win games since they joined the VFL, and like North Melbourne, they had turned their coaches over as they looked to break the cycle of losses. John Harris's stint as captain coach was over, and now Jim Jackson, who was a former Magpie player who joined Hawthorne in their VFA days and become the club's captain as they entered the VFL before he retired in 1926. He'd be a non-playing coach for the May Blooms. Melbourne were to be coached again by Ivor Warren-Smith, but the Brownlow medalist was expected to be a non-playing coach in the season's previews. However, he was back on the field by round five in what would be his final season as a player. Previews for season 1932 were full of confidence that the year ahead would be a successful one, even with the difficult economic conditions. Membership tickets were now available on a lay-by scheme to ease supporters' cash flow challenges, and practice games had been well patronised and the VFL and the VFA were cooperating more than usual. The opening round, unlike the practice matches, was played in perfect weather, but Perhaps this just made it easier for the better teams. While the opening round of 1931 was noted for most games having close results, season 1932 saw a series of clear victories for the winning teams. Geelong, as was tradition, hosted North Melbourne 
and after unfurling their premiership, took control of the game in the second half for an easy 50-point win. Richmond, last season's runners-up, were hosting St Kilda in what was expected to be the game of the day, as the Saints, as happens in many seasons, was thought by many to be a potential big improver. But a five-goal first quarter to the Tigers, with St Kilda only scoring one behind, set the scene for a match that did not get any closer. If the Saints were going to improve, they needed to do more than they showed in Round 1. Prior to Round 1, 1932, Footscray had never won a game at Windy Hill. And after Round 1, they could add another season to that unwanted record, while Collingwood maintained their undefeated record against Hawthorne. South had made changes to their management committee and their playing list as well as their jumper and now they could celebrate their first week with a win over Melbourne. Perhaps the real upset for the round was last year's finalist Carlton losing to Fitzroy. It was the only close game of the round but the Maroons rewarded their fans with a 14 point win over the Blues. Round 2 saw the Motodrome host its first VFL game. Located opposite the MCG where Amy Park, or the Melbourne Rectangular Stadium, according to the ABC rules, is now located. It had been developed for motor racing, and the VFA had already played some games there. Now, with the MCG being resurfaced in preparation for the much-anticipated Asher series, Melbourne would play three home games at this unusual location before their traditional home ground would be ready for them. The Motodrome ground management delivered an innovation providing match commentary over the PA system for the first five minutes of the game until league secretary, like McBrien, intervened, pointing out that the noise might disturb some of the players and affect the game. Sadly for Melbourne, it was Richmond who felt more at home, winning by more than 60 points as they looked to make a statement early in the season. Reigning Premier's Geelong showed that Collingwood's era of total dominance was coming to a close by beating the Magpies at Victoria Park. In a sign of the times, the league made 200 tickets available to each club to be given to the unemployed in their district. A similar scheme, with a smaller number of tickets, had been implemented by the VFA the previous season, with local unemployment relief societies distributing the tickets. Not everybody was a supporter of the scheme. A correspondent to the Australasian wrote that he thought the idea was a good one, as he was always unemployed on a Saturday afternoon, and perhaps the scheme could be expanded to include free admission to the race meetings and free bets arranged for further interest. While the correspondent may not have been supportive, I'm sure the unemployed who did get to go to games were pleased with the offer. Emphasising how tough financial circumstances were, even Collingwood had to reduce player payments. Rumours reached the players before the Round 5 game against rivals Carlton. There was heavy argument in the change rooms before the game. Bruce Andrews was the player's delegate sent to talk to Secretary Frank Wraith and Treasurer Bob Rush. It was a tense time, but eventually the players decided they would play. They were late out onto the ground, and despite efforts to, quote, kill the bastards, they lost by 20 points. It must have been tough for the players and Captain Sid Coventry, who had already accepted a cut in pay despite the threat of a strike in 1928. Demonstrating the leadership he was renowned for, Jock McHale also agreed to a 10 shilling pay cut. If it was happening to the players, 
it would happen to him too. After six rounds, or the first third of the season, the big surprise was South Melbourne, leading the table, undefeated, followed by Geelong and Richmond, who, just to show how closely matched they were at this point in the season, had played out a draw in their round six game at the Corio Oval. With Essendon making at the four, Collingwood were giving their coach and supporters something to worry about, in unfamiliar territory at sixth spot. Just one game ahead of North Melbourne, who were also in unfamiliar territory, having won three games in this early part of the season. At the bottom of the ladder were Melbourne, with their early season home games away from their beloved MCG, perhaps explaining why they had not won a single game. The King's Birthday Monday saw the second annual charity game between the VFL and the VFA, this time held at Princess Park given the Melbourne cricket ground surface was not quite ready for football. Unlike 1931, the weather was fine and over 30,000 people attended for a game that was much closer than many expected. The league did win, but only by 8 points, and the VFA came home with a wet sail in the last quarter, kicking 6 goals to 1, but just not able to overtake the VFL team. A successful day by all accounts. We shall have to wait to see how much longer the truce between the rival football bodies will last and how many more charity games will be held. The week after the charity game was occupied by interstate matches. Victoria had another eight-point win, this time at the MCG, hosting its first game for the season against South Australia. Victorian teams also travelled to Hobart to defeat Tasmania and Sydney for a win against New South Wales. Matches resumed on Saturday the 18th of June, and all eyes were on the South Melbourne-Geelong game. Both teams were unbeaten after six rounds, although Geelong had a draw against the Tigers. It was an epic game, worthy of the occasion. Bob Scott, who umpired seven grand finals in a row, declared that it was the best game he'd ever seen in more than 600 games over 20 years. No disputes when frees were paid, no abuse from supporters, just two highly skilled teams playing the game at an elite level. It was also the debut game for Brighton Dickens, who'd finally got his clearance from Western Australia. 40,000 people were at the Lakeside Oval, and Diggins took a spectacular mark just minutes from the final bell to kick a goal to put South in front. Bob Pratt followed up to give South a nine-point win, undefeated, still at the top of the ladder. The Lakeside supporters were getting excited about their team's prospects for the finals, having missed out since 1924. Round 7 also saw an innovation in radio broadcasting with a tie-in to the Argus. 3UZ were broadcasting the Richmond-Fitzroy game and the Saturday morning Argus had a map of the Punt Road Oval with a clock face layout. The goals were at 2 and 8 o'clock. The railway end was at 6 and the grandstand at 11 o'clock. This, theoretically, would give listeners a clear picture of wherever the ball was as they listened to the 3UZ commentators. About 50 years later, famous umpire, commentator and media personality Harry Beitzel would bring the clock face back for commentating one-day cricket matches at the MCG. Maybe, just maybe, the five-year-old Harry was listening to 3UZ in 1932 and remembered the clock face commentary when he brought it back in 1983. South then took on Richmond at Punt Road and had their first win in many seasons at the Tigers' home ground. Eight wins in a row for the Lakesiders, 
and Richmond and Geelong had both slipped out of the four, replaced by Essendon and an improving Collingwood. St Kilda had not seen the success that they were hoping for, and in June the situation came to a head. When a club is not winning on the field, a committee can either look at their own performance in supporting the coach and players, consider if the players selected for the season were of the right calibre and how recruitment might be improved, or they can sack the coach. Most often, sacking the coach is the chosen option, even if they are doing the best they can do in the circumstances provided. St Kilda's committee called Charlie Hardy, now in his second year at the club, and gave him the opportunity to resign. But he wouldn't resign. He provided some direct criticism and feedback to the committee, pointing out how he had not been supported when players refused to follow his directions, and then left the meeting. The next day, he informed the club he would be attending training as usual. By Thursday, the club had sent written notice of dismissal, with a week's pay, and appointed Captain Stuart King as caretaker coach for the remainder of the season. Hardy replied, in writing, that he had been appointed for the 1932 season, that he was not aware of any reason to justify the termination of his employment, and he would be attending training on Thursday, and looked for the committee's cooperation. On the Saturday, Hardy wrote an open letter published in the papers defending his time as coach and responding to criticisms, pointing out that the team was fit, and to those who said he did not know football, he simply referred them to his record. Player in four premierships with North in the VFA, two with Essendon in the VFL, coached two premierships in the VFA with Coburg, and three seasons at Essendon, only narrowly missing out on finals. He also coached Williamstown Juniors to two premierships during the First World War when the VFA was in recess. It seems he might have known something about football. He also pointed out that he had warned the committee of changes required at the start of the season and the lack of support when players openly disobeyed his directions. He wanted to protect his reputation. Not clear on how the legal action unfolded, but the St Kilda committee were thrown out by a reform group which would finally ensure St Kilda managed their affairs effectively with the United Club leading to success. Well, maybe. In the modern era, supporters at league grounds can be seated in comfort, sheltered under cover and guaranteed a seat. But it was not always so. As far back as 1932, Jumbo Charland was making the obvious point that VFL patrons in the outer were treated very poorly, standing on steep embankments, exposed to the rain with very poor facilities. He called for grandstands to be built for all spectators, like they were in the USA, so patrons were given the conditions that they deserved. It would be many decades before this call was realised. By round 12, the season was two-thirds complete. South was still on top of the ladder, and had only lost one game against the Magpies, who were now racing after a slow start to their season. Carlton and Collingwood both had 10 wins. Richmond were back in the four, and Geelong sat fifth, a game and a half behind the Tigers. The Cats had fallen away after their epic game against South, when they lost for the first time in the season, and had only managed wins against Hawthorne and North in the following games. Footscray and Essendon both had six wins, and still had some hopes of making the final four, if the cards fell in their favour. At the other end of the table, 
It was Hawthorne on the bottom with two wins in a familiar spot, joined by Fitzroy and St Kilda, also on two wins. The season meandered its way to a gentle conclusion of the home and away season. Geelong lost to Richmond in the second last round, which meant that the final four would not change. The only surprise in the final round was that Geelong made their impact felt by defeating South Melbourne at home, which meant Collingwood moved to third and South dropped to fourth. But it still meant that these two teams would meet in the first semi-final. While top of the table, Carlton would play Richmond in the second semi-final. North Melbourne supporters had reason to hope. They had not made the finals, but they had won eight games. In the previous 40 games, they'd only had one victory. Perhaps things were changing at Arden Street. Footscray had nine wins and, again, been close to finals. So, at least two of the recent VFA clubs were moving in the right direction. At the other end of the ladder, Hawthorne picked up another wooden spoon after only winning three games, behind St Kilda and Fitzroy, also on three wins. The winner of 1932's Almost This Award, for just missing out on the finals, were the reigning Premier's Geelong, two games out of the four and unable to defend their 1931 Premiership, even though they had the best percentage of all teams. But they could celebrate the extraordinary efforts of full forward George Maloney, who kicked 109 goals for the season, the first player to get the ton without playing finals. He scored his 100th goal in the second last round against Richmond, and while the applause rang out across the ground, there was no invasion of spectators. Still yet to see when that tradition began. On the Wednesday before the final started, the Brownlow medal votes were tallied at the meeting of the umpires committee, and Hayden Bunton, playing his second season in the VFL for Fitzroy, won his second Brownlow medal. An extraordinary start to what will prove to be an extraordinary career. Bunton said that he thought the game was much easier to play in the city, quote, As the game is not nearly so crowded, it gives one much greater scope to reveal one's best, he said. And, as is common in every season, there were questions on who had got votes or not got votes for specific matches, but Bunton was acknowledged as a worthy winner. The profile of the Brownlow had increased in the last couple of seasons. In the early years, there would just be a short article naming the winner after the vote count. Now there were previews discussing which players would poll well and who might win and then the Thursday papers all carried detailed summaries of the votes cast in each round. The first semi-final was played on Saturday the 10th of September. South would be taking on Collingwood, the team that broke their undefeated run earlier in the season. Collingwood had not been able to dominate the season as they had between 1927 and 30 when they won their unmatched four premierships in a row. But after a slow start to the season, they were, as seemed normal for the Magpies, competing in the finals. South had real injury troubles, with Western Australian star recruit Brighton Diggins out having broken his leg and 1930 Brownlow runner-up Peter Revel out with a broken arm. Captain coach John Leonard was suffering from a poisoned leg without access to any antibiotics in this era and Vice-Captain Jack Bissett had injured his neck in the game against Geelong, which meant that he could not work nor train in the week before the game. But he had to play, given the desperate circumstances the club was in. Gilbert Beard, another of the Western Australians, had a dodgy ankle. Despite all that, South had been playing good football for much of the season, and the Herald tipped that Collingwood were going to find it difficult to win. 
A very large panel of current and former players had Collingwood in front, but there was still support from quite a few for South Melbourne. And while the Collingwood team was full of players with years of final experience, South Melbourne only had one, Jack Bissett, who had played in finals in 1928 and 1931 with Richmond, before shifting to South. As mentioned, the Magpies were the first club to defeat South this season in Round 11, while South Melbourne had not defeated Collingwood since 1924, setting up a real challenge for the semi-final. 51,000 people were at the MCG on a fine Saturday afternoon, and they saw Collingwood take control of the game in a brilliant first quarter. In the first 14 minutes, they kicked seven goals, two behinds, before South could score. The game was being taken away from the Lakesiders before they had a chance to start. Collingwood scored eight goals, five, 53, a record first quarter for a final. South Melbourne left flat-footed on one goal, one behind, seven points. The second quarter gave no relief. While South fumbled and spilt the ball, Collingwood were full of confidence, pace, and looked like they could do no wrong. Halftime saw the Magpies leading 12 goals, eight, to South Melbourne on one goal, two behinds, eight points. The South Melbourne supporters spent half-time in shocked silence. The team knew that changes were required and shuffled players around and things went better in the third quarter, although Collingwood had probably started to cruise given the result was beyond doubt. Eventually, in the last quarter, the Southerners showed some signs of what they were capable of, scoring goals, taking fine marks and giving their supporters, well, at least those who had stayed till the end, something to cheer about. But the game was over. Collingwood moving to the preliminary final, 17 goals, 12, 114 points, to South Melbourne, 12 goals, 15, 98. South Melbourne's season was over. It had started brilliantly with 10 wins in a row, but injuries and perhaps inexperience had caught up with the team. It was not the result they wanted, but they definitely showed progress from previous seasons, and we'll be hearing more about them in coming episodes. Perhaps South supporters took some comfort they had outscored Collingwood 11 goals to 9 after quarter time, but that first quarter had decided the game. Carlton and Richmond took on each other in the second semi. The teams had played twice during the season for one win each. Remarkably, each game was decided on the last kick of the day, The two popular clubs and the visitors from the country for show week ensured it was a huge crowd of 63,000 spectators packing the MCG, a new record for a semi-final. In the first semi, it was Collingwood that got off to a flying start, and in the second semi-final, Carlton had the best of the first quarter, but not quite to the same extent, kicking five goals four to Richmond's one goal four. But in the second quarter, Carlton's ruck Murray Johnson had to leave the field, which did not help their cause, as the Tigers got themselves back into the game. It was only a goal the difference at half-time, and it seemed the close games between these two clubs earlier in the season was going to be repeated. The third quarter was an even affair. Great marks were being taken, and the players from both teams were throwing themselves at the ball. At three-quarter time, the Blues still had the advantage of two goals. Checker Hughes urged his men to play in surges and run Carlton off their feet. And it was the Tigers that burst their way into the front in a dominant last quarter, scoring five goals four to two goals four, overrunning Carlton defenders and booking a place in the grand final. 
Centerman Eric Setch had played a great game, getting a hat for best on-field performance. And the Strang brothers, Doug and Gordon, were dominant. They took 26 marks between them. South Melbourne supporters might have wished that they had followed their dad, William Strang, who had played at the Lakeside Oval before the First World War. But Richmond had done the hard work to get the brothers down from Albury, and it was paying off. Doug's son, Jeff, would follow his dad and play in Richmond's 1967 grand final side. But again, that's many seasons to come. In the modern era, the league's Knight of Knights is the Brownlow Medal, with red carpet providing opportunity for fashions to be shown. Players wear suits that may show some flair, or, at times, be the last thing available from the suit hire place, which could mean that you collect your Brownlow medal in a brown velvet creation. But, in 1932, the VFL's big night was a gala ball on the show day holiday eve, the Wednesday before the preliminary final, held at the Wattle Path Palais de Dance, On the St Kilda Esplanade, it was a glittering affair. And not just a VFL occasion. There were representatives from the VFA, the Australian Football Council, many suburban leagues, the Wednesday League and more. The president of the VFL, Dr McClellan, presented the Brownlow Medal to Hayden Bunton, despite many supporters calling for this to be done at the grand final. On a lighter note, South Melbourne's Ron Hillis and his partner, Miss B. Townsend won the judges and crowd votes for their best dancers. Perhaps competitive dancing between players and their partners could be added to the Brownlow medal broadcasts in between the vote counts. The preliminary final was on Saturday the 24th of September. The Blues had beaten Collingwood in two close games during the season and topped the ladder. But Collingwood had been so impressive in their semi-final win and the Blues looked to have faded away against the Tigers. The feeling was... Maybe Collingwood could win and make it to yet another grand final. 46,000 people were at the game, and if they expected another close game between these traditional rivals, they were to be disappointed. After two hard-fought quarters, Carlton had the advantage by three goals. Nobody could have predicted what would happen next. In recent years, Collingwood had been playing in grand finals with a monotonous regularity, while Carlton would make the final four, but not proceed to the premiership decider. In 1932, the script changed in dramatic fashion. Clearly, Dan Minogue delivered a clear and compelling message at half-time because traffic was just one way in the final two quarters. In the third quarter, Carlton kicked 10 goals 7 to Collingwood's two goals. Sophie Valance was having a day out. By the end of the day, he'd kicked 11 goals 9 behinds on his own. His score almost matched Collingwood's entire team effort of 11 goals 16. And the game was, as described by the age, something of a farce, as every Carlton player tried every possible way to help Valance score more goals to help break the record for a final. The Blues won the game by 75 points, with a record score of 23 goals, 19 behinds, 157, and were through to their first grand final since 1921. The Magpies would have to regroup and begin planning for 1933. Richmond and Carlton were playing in the 1932 Premiership Decider. The Tigers were led by Percy Bentley, a ruckman who could be dangerous around the goals when resting forward. He was leading the team for the first time this season, and he would captain the side until 1940. Ironically, he would then move to Carlton to coach the Blues for many seasons before becoming a long-term selector and committeeman. 
He also has the claim to being the first person to have a kick on what would become VFL Park after the first sod was turned in January 1965. Before this 1932 grand final, he said, Richmond's marking and determination, combined with strong defence, were their strengths. Colin Martin led the Blues. He joined the club from Coburg in 1928, aged 25. Appointed as vice-captain in 1931, he took over the captaincy when Ray Brew suffered a career-ending injury and he would continue in the role in 1932, his final season. He played in the centre and was renowned as a tough but fair player. Gordon Coventry said that Martin was a fine exponent of the game, who never wasted a kick, with the grace of a ballet dancer and the deadly accuracy of a King's Prize winner. In his pre-game interview, Martin said that the Blues would have a more even form than the semi-final, and he was convinced they had a good chance. Carlton's coach was Dan Minogue, who'd been the Richmond captain coach when the Tigers last won a premiership against the Blues in 1921. The former Collingwood star had moved to the Tigers and been captain coach for two years before he coached from the sidelines for another four. He then spent two unsuccessful years at Hawthorne in their very early years in the VFL before moving to Carlton in 1929, a role he would hold for six years, before coaching stints at St Kilda and Fitzroy would see him coach 20 seasons over 23 years for 343 games, one of the longer careers in league history, but probably not as well known as he should be. Richmond was, once again, coached by Checker Hughes. He'd been in charge of the Tigers since 1927. As mentioned in previous episodes, he'd already coached teams in eight grand finals, but been runners-up on eight occasions. Three times with Olveston in Tasmania, once with Richmond's second 18, and four times with the senior team. Surely, ninth time is a charm. The umpire for the game was once again Bob Scott, for his fourth grand final in a row, on his way to seven in a row. Scott would continue to umpire to 1935. Interviewed in 1936, he made it clear that too much speed was not good for the game, leading to inaccuracy, failure of players to keep their position, jostling and diminishing of skills, such as short passing. I don't think he would be a fan of the modern game. Richmond went into the finals as favourites by some, having defeated Carlton in the semi-final and having a week off. But others were impressed by the Blues' preliminary final form and had them in front. Both sides were eager for a premiership. Richmond's last was in 1921 when they beat the Blues and Carlton had not taken out the premiership since 1915. Perhaps Richmond were under more pressure, having been runners-up four times in the last five years beaten by Collingwood three times in a row and then Geelong last season. Could they crack that hoodoo? Captains of the other VFL teams were surveyed in Friday Night's Herald and Richmond had a slight majority. Team selection, like every grand final, was difficult. The Blues had to make one change. Jack Green had injured his knee in the preliminary final. The star forward had played nearly every game of the season, kicked 25 goals, but would miss the big game. He did play the following season for the Blues before finishing his career at Hawthorne, but never getting the chance to play in a grand final. Into the team came Alf Egan, playing his second game since round nine, lining up at centre-half forward. Alf has the honour of being the first Indigenous player to play for the Blues and North Melbourne 
where he played in 1934 and 35. Richmond also made one change. Former captain Alan Geddes had been injured and missed the semi-final, but was brought back for the grand final. The unlucky player was Bill Benton. He'd been in and out of the team all season. Originally from Birdship, he moved to Western Australia in 1933 and played five seasons for West Perth, winning two premierships. Some had hoped that the young Jack Dyer would make it back into the team for this critical game, but the selection committee decided not to risk recovery of his knee, and the Herald reported that he was also suffering from a bout of influenza. Saturday, October 1st was fine. The sky was clear and the day was perfect for football. 70,000 were at the game, making it even more crowded than the semi-final. They had to get in early to get a view, so many spectators got to watch the curtain raiser between Melbourne and Essendon. Melbourne won the day with a big last quarter, 8 goals 12-60, to the Dons on 4 goals 10-34. It was Melbourne's second reserves premiership in a row, with an almost identical winning score. Two reserve premierships early in the 1930s? What could that possibly mean later in the decade for the Melbourne Football Club? So many people were at the game that once again they came over the fence and lined the boundary. Before the game, Checker Hughes spoke to his players and addressed the elephant in the room. Or was it a tiger? Runners up four times in five years before this game. He told them clearly the eyes of the football world were on them, waiting for them to fail again. He warned them another failure would give birth to a reputation that would take a generation to destroy. The players entered the field, knowing they had to win. But Hughes was not just relying on emotional inspiration. Richmond had plans for each Carlton player. They had to stop the forwards moving the ball quickly near the goal. Halfback flanker Basil McCormick was told to stick like Lou to the Blues' brilliant Keith Shea. Fullback Murray Sheehan's simple instruction... Follow Soapy Valance wherever he goes. The Herald had appointed Collingwood's Sid Coventry as a special comments observer. Having captained four premiership teams and with years of experience, his insights were worth noting. Hayden Bunton was performing a similar role for the radio station 3DB and the Sporting Globe. The use of current and former players to comment on finals is a tradition that continues today, although now across many media formats. Percy Bentley won the toss and the Tigers kicked towards the railway end. It was a hectic start to the game with both teams applying force. Umpire Scott awarded Richmond's Murray Hunter a free in the forward line and he scored the opening goal of the game. Like many grand finals, the opening quarter was tense as both sides tried to take the lead but without creating any opportunities for the other's team. Coventry noted that the Tigers looked stronger in the opening quarter and used some clever tactics to pick up early goals. The Strang brothers were taking high marks and the Carlton defenders were turning back attacks. But Soapy Valance was too good a player not to make an early impact and he got Carlton's first goal as they worked their way back in the game. At quarter time it was Richmond in front, but just by one goal. Three goals, three, 21 to the Blues, two goals, three, 15. The second quarter was just as tough as the first, with Richmond defenders applying plenty of pressure. The Sporting Globe noted that Carlton's half-forward Keith Shea must have felt that he was out on a very rough sea. Valance scored a third and fourth goal for Carlton. It was going to be a tough day for Murray Sheehan trying to keep Valance under control. But then moments later, Richmond skipper Percy Bentley was felled by a backhander by Gordon Mackey. The game had seen some willing action. 
but this was just too blatant. Umpire Scott reported Mackey and gave a free kick to Bentley, who converted with a goal. When the halftime bell rang, the Tigers had extended their lead, 7 goals 9-51, to Carlton's 5 goals 6-36. It was a handy break, but not enough to feel confident about the result. The third quarter saw Carlton try some positional moves. Mickey Crisp lined up on Basil McCormick, Keith Shea went into the forward pocket, and Cinnamon Colin Martin roamed the whole ground at will. Umpire Scott put the whistle away, only calling out the most blatant infringements, allowing the game to flow. Alf Egan, brought into the team at the last moment, was put on the ball and impressed many with his efforts. The game turned into something of a stalemate. Tempers were rising, heated words were exchanged, and umpire Scott spoke to players from both teams. The Tigers only scoring one goal, and Carlton edging closer with two for the quarter. At the final break, Richmond led by seven points. It seemed nobody was going to leave this game early, and in the last quarter, it was to become an even closer match. Richmond started that last quarter well. Senneman's sec passed on to Skipper Bentley, who did the right thing as captain, kicking true to put his team 13 points up. But a free kick to Sabia Valance got Carlton back in touch again. In grand finals, there often comes a time when a player will seize a moment, take a chance, and put themselves in the spotlight. Maury Johnson for Carlton took that moment in the final quarter when he grabbed the ball deep in their back line and ran, bounced, dodged, bounced, weaved past defenders, avoided tackles and bounced again. He had run almost the length of the MCG and coolly, calmly passed the ball to Harry Valance, who honoured the effort by kicking the goal. Carlton supporters were on their feet cheering their heroes. They were just one point down, and with more of this form, the Premiership was heading their way. Yet the Tigers kept focused, with the experience of former captains Alan Geddes and Murray Hunter. The ball was passed down to their forward line, and Tom O'Halloran scored a settling goal, back to a seven-point lead, and maybe just a minor swing back in momentum. It was Hunter's last roll in the game. He had hurt his knee in the third quarter, and now... Deep into the fourth, after being tackled again and brought down, he reluctantly made his way over the boundary line. 19th man, Jack Anderson, entered the field. He had fresh legs, and there were many, many weary players on the ground. But now the game swung in Carlton's favour. Mickey Crisp kicked the ball long into the forward line, and Keith Shea, having been moved further up forward in the third quarter, whipped it through for a goal. The roar of the crowd was deafening. After the centre bounce, the ball was back in Carlton's forward line. Jack Baggett for Richmond had been solid in defence all day, but this time he could not trap the ball. It bounced away, picked up by Kelly, onto Valance, who seemed to be everywhere. A kick into the goal square, a scramble, and Horry Bullen, getting his foot to the ball, put it through for a goal. Carlton, five points up. In front for the first time in the game but at the time when it counted. There were only minutes to go. It had been a long season. The top two teams were playing off of the Premiership, and now, as the seconds ticked away, less than a goal separated the two teams. Both sides were throwing every effort into the final moments. A point to the Tigers was useful, but not enough. The ball flew into the Richmond forward line, and it was the outstretched hands of Doug Strang holding onto the mark. His shot went straight through the middle. Richmond 
back in front by two points. Carlton would not drop their heads. They counterattacked and got the ball into their forward line and Valence had the ball, pursued by Morishian as he had all day. Heading away from the goals, Valence handballed to that man, Horry Bullen, who kicked another goal to put the Blues back in front. No one could take their eyes off the game. I said earlier, there are moments in time in grand finals, but they're not always good moments. A long kick into the Richmond forward line. Carlton's ruckman, Charlie Davey, had the front swat in the goal square. Then he had the ball, but in what must have felt like a slow-motion horror show, he dropped the mark. Richmond's 19th man, Jack Anderson, only on the ground for half a quarter, full of energy and fresh legs, pushed his way through the pack and scored the goal to put the Tigers back in front. Had any grand final had this many changes to the lead in the final minutes? Perhaps Davies' momentary lapse was the breaking point, because straight from the centre bounce, the ball came back into the Tigers' forward line, and Jack Titus took his time to kick the team's 13th goal. Carlton had been valiant, kept close all day, taken the lead twice in the last quarter, but now they needed two more goals. However, the tide was flowing the other way, the ball back in Richmond's forward line, and veteran Alan Geddes, who'd captained one of those runners-up team in 1927 against Collingwood, had a shot at goal. It went close, but it hit the post. Geddes did not mind. The game was won, and as the umpire waved the flag, the final bell to end the season rang out loud. The Tigers and their coach finally had their premiership. They had done it tough. Hunter off with a knee injury, and it was later revealed that Alan Geddes had played most of the game with a fractured jaw. The Richmond rooms were crowded, loud and excited. Club president Barney Herbert was wearing the premiership jumper and the cap he earned in 1921 when he played in the last Tiger team to achieve the ultimate success. He was joined briefly by his former captain coach Dan Minogue, who said after Carlton he preferred Richmond to win the premiership and there were kind words of congratulations from Carlton's president, David Crone. Percy Page, the Tigers' former secretary, who had taken the year off for health reasons, also had a few words to say. He recalled the times he had to go and congratulate Collingwood, but now it was all reversed. And of course, Checker Hughes was loudly cheered, now that he had the premiership that he'd been chasing for so long. But amongst all the cheer, there was a side conversation between Percy Page and Checker Hughes, which we'll return to later. Eventually, the players and officials made it to the Hotel Metropole in Burke Street for a celebration dinner, and their host, Michael Maguire, former Richmond player from before the war, ensured a good time was had by all. After dinner, the players were paraded through Richmond in a charabank. An open carriage, picture theatres in Bridge Road and Burnley were interrupted as the players were brought on stage to ovations. President Barney Herbert led the chorus. What did we do? he asked, and the crowd in both theatres responded, Eat them alive! From the theatres, then to the town hall, where the mayor received the victors, and onto Punt Road for a dance. But the night was not done yet. After the dance, the players travelled to the home of club secretary Jack Smith, where the players enjoyed themselves some more. There was even a trip to Mornington on the Sunday for a dinner with a late night return to Melbourne. I do wonder how many of the players made it to work on Monday morning. The post-season months saw some administrative issues dealt with, not all to the league's satisfaction. 
For much of the season, the League had been attempting to impose, or perhaps request, a common constitution for all clubs. The aim was to get some stability in League delegates and have common processes across all the clubs now that League football was a big business. But this was not received well by the club members. The League was getting too big for its boots and the proposal was rejected. At the start of November, the Australian Football Council met in Melbourne for the biannual conference, which, just by coincidence, was the same week as the Melbourne Cup Carnival. There were attempts to simplify the processes to change rules. For example, reduce the power of minor states. But these did not get the three-quarters majority required to change the constitution. Not surprisingly, the minor states were not going to vote themselves out of a position of influence. The only rule change agreed was a minor update to the out-of-bounds rule. No return to the general throw-in that the VFL clubs wanted, but if an umpire could not confirm which team should get a free kick when the ball went out-of-bounds, there would now be a throw-in from the boundary rather than a ball-up. Also, the VFL tried to get a 12-month residence rule established to reduce the interstate trafficking of players. But after years of complaints from Western Australia and South Australia about Victorian clubs taking their players, they now opposed the change. Seems they had their eyes on some key Victorian players, and if a good job could be offered, the traffic in players could flow out of Victoria as well as in. Mid-November saw the news that Percy Page was going to be appointed Secretary of the Melbourne Football Club. He was following in the footsteps of another Richmond Secretary, Alan Manzi, who was Secretary for 11 years with the Tigers, but then moved to the MCG and had that role with Melbourne for 20 years, from 1912 to 1931. While losing an effective and well-connected official to Melbourne was bad enough, although he had resigned a year earlier, worse was to follow. Percy had a conversation with Checker Hughes. Checker needed a job. Coaching was only a part-time role. Percy had a printing business, and Checker Hughes would become a sales rep and coach of Melbourne. The dynamic duo would make a big impact at Melbourne, a club whose reserves had just won the last two premierships, indicating that there might be some talent coming through. So that brings us to the end of the 1932 season. The summer would be spent watching the extraordinary drama of the Bodyline Ashes series before gearing up for the 1933 season. One of the footballers joining the VFL in 1933 reckoned he could have ended Bodyline in just two overs. Laurie Nash was a fearsome fast bowler and a terrific footballer. You just had to ask him. But the Australian selectors believed retaliation would inflame an already fraught position. Nash's cricket career was delayed, but we will learn more about his footballing exploits and other new recruits and veterans when we return for season 1933. If you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. If you have questions or you want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.au website or Facebook or Twitter for more Grand Final History. Mm-hmm.